Good morning. It's great to be alive this morning and to, uh, to have the capacity to ask questions. I'm, I'm just, as I'm aging a little bit here, I, I ask different kinds of questions, but I, or I ask myself, you know, I want to ask good questions, but I keep coming back to two- and three-year-old questions. Like, there's a question that two- and three-year-olds ask that's like a basic question. How many of you know, what, what is that question? Why? And the, and the parental answer is, because, you know, it's a great exchange. It's a wonderful moment. And they keep saying why, and we keep saying because, and finally we say because, I, you know, I'm bigger. But um, when I read Scripture, that's one, of the, that's one of the questions I ask. I'll read something, and I'll say, why? One of those texts is in this Life After Easter series that Pastor Derry and I are doing here for these three weeks. And I've called this little part today, so what's for dinner? And um, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 24, 13th chapter, 19th through the 19th verse. It'll be on the screen. This is what happens. This is the Sunday afternoon of the resurrection. Resurrection occurred Sunday morning. This is Sunday afternoon. Now that same day, two of them, disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? Do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. And then he goes on to talk to them in these next verses about who the Messiah was from the Torah, from the Psalms, and so forth, or from from the prophets. And then we pick the story up at verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Well, that, you know, that kind of got him, and so they, they sort of hot-footed back to Jerusalem. That, that's not a biblical phrase. That's just both phrase. They hot-footed back to Jerusalem like it's nighttime now. They're raced back there, and the other disciples are there, and they're in a room with them. And in verse 36, it says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, they were just in shock. He asked them, "Uh, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. Now, I read that text, and it says that when he broke the bread, their eyes were open. And then he asks for food, like he's saying, so what's for dinner? In the middle of this traumatic time, this time of they're just all up in the air, he's thinking about food, and I'm saying, why? It's a big week for the disciples. Just seven days ago, they had that thing we call Palm Sunday when he comes into Jerusalem and they're waving palms and throwing down their coats and saying, you're the king. And within days, it's turned and they're after him. 
and the legal authorities and illegal authorities and the bigots and the religious types who don't like who he is and what he stands for, they arrange for him an illegal trial. They crucify him. And on the morning of the crucifixion, it's a terrible day. There's a huge earthquake. We kind of go past that. But there's an earthquake at that moment. The veil of the, of the temple that separates the Holy of Holies from the other place in the Jewish temple was torn from the top to the bottom. You've got all these things going on. Then they go and bury him in a, in a tomb. And, and the women go to sort of see it on Sunday morning. And he's not there. And now these guys, he just shows up on the road. And they don't know who he is. And, I mean, it's just been one of those times and as he's breaking the bread it was only 72 hours before it was on thursday night at the passover meal that he did exactly that and i say why did they see him why did they recognize him at that point one of the thoughts might be that they had watched him break bread two or three times a day for three years maybe it was the way he did it maybe it was in his manner maybe it was his i don't know Or maybe it was just that their eyes had scales on them, and in that moment, because of the plan of God, this other thing happened. But more than that, and this is where I take another step back in the why category, why are all these teaching moments in Scripture around food? From from Genesis in the Garden of Eden, when you have fruit, all the way to the wedding supper, this big banquet that's supposed to be at the end of time. All the way through, all of these times, it talks about food. Now, I'm big. I'm big on Jesus and I'm big on food. And some of you say, well, I can see that. But the, but the point is, but the point is why, why does he use that mechanism? Why is that there? Because in, in this book, it's there consistently. I, uh, I have a favorite southern author. He's an Alabaman by the name of Rick Bragg. He used to write for the New York Times Pulitzer Prize winner. And he talks about his mother fixing food. Listen to how he writes. The one great meal of the day, he was raised poor in Alabama. The one great meal of the day was breakfast. Because breakfast was cheap. Every morning of my childhood, I woke up to the smell of biscuits, to the overpowering aroma and popping sound of frying fat back, which we call white meat. Mama fried eggs laid by our own chickens and made gravy and grits. Sometimes there was nothing but biscuits and gravy made from yesterday's bacon grease, which I would take right now in place of just about anything I usually eat. We always had a hog, not hogs, a hog. And at hog killing time, we ate like kings until he had been reduced to snout and toenails. If I, <laughs> I have no idea what a hog's toenails look like, but that's what it says right here. If I was late for the school bus, she would shove a piece of fat back or bacon into a biscuit and I would eat it on the run. And to this day, I dream not of beautiful women and wealth and power as often as I dream of sausage gravy over biscuits with a sliced tomato on the side and a small lake of real grits, not that bland, pale, watery restaurant stuff I would not serve on death row, (laughs) but grits cooked with butter and plenty of salt and black pepper. It's all the way through here. I don't know if grits is in here, but but they got all they've got it's all the way through here. Here's the bulletin note, the first one. The story of God is told around food. From Genesis to Revelation. From the Garden of Eden, manna in the desert, Abraham welcoming welcoming angelic visitors and being hospitable to them. Canaan land was a land described as a land of milk and honey. 
Daniel the prophet when he's in a foreign land with these guys and they got a pagan king and they have kind of this well this isn't the Pillsbury Bake Off but it's this contest and he has these young guys who say we'll eat our diet and you eat yours and we'll see who comes out the strongest you have Jesus ministry is full of it and we'll come to that in a minute in the early church, the, the first great challenge they had structurally was they had widows from various countries coming and the folks who were homegrown, sabras, what they would, you know, the, the people who were born in Israel, they, the other folks felt they were getting more, so they put deacons in place to kind of wait tables, make sure there's equitable passing out of food. When Peter has his eyes open to see that there are more than Jewish people that need to hear about Jesus, the vision he has is of a sheet coming down from heaven with unclean animals in it and the voice saying, take and eat. This is, it, was, it was a metaphor for reaching out and food was used. Paul says, whatever you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. And then when church leaders are chosen, it has certain guidelines. Can't be a philanderer, got to be good with money, got to uh, treat your family well. And right in the middle of it, it says, given to hospitality. And I'm saying... What's that about? You've got to be a punch and cookie person? You gotta, I mean, how, how, does that, how does that work? Carl Olson, former college president, wrote a book years ago called Come to the Party, talking about the kingdom of God. He said, the Bible is a party full of merriment and red balloons. The feast outruns the fast. Crammed with spitted kids and lambs and fatted calves, oil in the beard, bread and cakes, grapes, pomegranates, olives and dates, skins and vats of wine, milk and honey. And my question is, why is food and hospitality so central to this message? The other night we were sitting with some friends, and I happened to mention that I was going to be talking about this, and we just put it on the table. And one of the friends said, well, we're designed for food. Everybody eats. Like 6.7 billion people on the planet do that, and they do it every day. And if they don't do it every day, pretty soon they die. You... You understand that we don't get nutrients through our pores, but God in his wisdom designed us as eating people. Now, there are some who don't get food. 40,000 children died yesterday of malnutrition or starvation around the world, and our young people this weekend are going to take a shot at that, going to look at that and say, just because we get food and they don't, we need to be aware of what's going on. Someone else said that this is essential to life. It's basic. Food is just basic. If you don't get air for just a few seconds, you die. If you don't get water for five days, you die. If you don't get food for 30 days, you're gone. Someone else said, when I think of the table, I think of life and community. That, that at the table, it's a place of conversation and intimacy and shared life. Someone else said, we need to understand the Middle East to understand this book. This is, this is a place where hospitality is king. This is a place where in some cultures, if you're an enemy and come to your enemy's door, they have to let you in and take care of you. You're safe as long as you're there in that house. And, and it isn't just that you go to the 7-Eleven and get a couple of things or swing by one of the grocery stores. Not in this day. You had to prepare everything. It was a, it was a time. And when you had weddings, it was, they were three or four days long and they were feasts. and they were, It was a big deal. But I live in a sort of a fast food culture. I'm a fast food junkie guy. I just go through because I go, I take food on my way to do something else. In this book, they come to the place of food and they do whatever it is there. 
I live in a fast food culture. I wonder if this is a slow food culture. I wonder if the kingdom of God is a selah time. Selah is that old Hebrew word that means change your place on the temple steps or change keys or take a deep breath or just relax for a moment to get perspective. To... Some of you were raised on farms. You remember working all day, coming in, and the closure of the day was coming in to sit around the family table to catch up, to hear what's going on, how are the crops doing, dream the dream. It was that place. And in our culture today, we blow right by that oftentimes, and I'm speaking of myself, and I don't take the time to sit at table. I have a Latin American ambassador friend in D.C., and he kept coming to this breakfast that they had for some leaders in D.C. And one day I said, Pablo, I said, why do you come to this thing? And he said, you know, you know, he had this deep Spanish accent of voice. He said, you know, Dick. He said, uh, when I was a boy, a young man growing up in my country, we would go each evening to the plaza, and we would sit in the plaza, and we would drink coffee and eat some cakes, and we would look at the young women, and we would quote poetry and speak philosophy and think these thoughts. And it was a moment when you restore your soul. And this breakfast where I come where you people love each other, talk about Jesus and love me, is the closest place to the plaza I can come. His culture is a culture, the Latin American culture, is a culture that oftentimes sees people as more important things. So time doesn't have as much impact in that kind of culture. They're not the only culture. There are lots of cultures like that. We have some friends who are going to that culture in just a few days. I'm going to ask them to come up. We've got five gentlemen going to Panama in the next few days, and I thought this would be a great place to just have a prayer for them before they go. And... Uh, Pastor Mark, our missions pastor, is going along, being part of the team, and uh, we'd just like to have a prayer for them before they go. But Mark, why don't you just come here and tell us, you can speak into my mic if we stand real close. You don't mind me talking into your cheek? It's okay. I've, yeah, I've had worse things than that. Go ahead. Just, what are you going to do? We're going uh, with the team. We're, we're partnering with a church in Greeley, uh, a Spanish-speaking church. Seventeen guys from that church and our team are going to Panama working with one of the missionaries that Timberline has supported. We took an offering, Timberline did, uh, last year to build a church in Panama in partnership with this ministry, and we're going to put the walls up of that church. Great. I have a sense that, that somewhere along the line, these guys are going to get invited into somebody's house, and they're going to do this, this thing I'm talking about. They're going to sit at table and get to know folks and dream the dream and see what happens. Why don't you join me? Let's pray for these guys. Lord Jesus, here we are. You know us like the back of your hand. You know these guys, their hearts, they've taken the time. They've uh, invested money in order to do this. We pray that as they go, they're not just representatives of this congregation, although that's a wonderful thing, but they in fact are the, are the kingdom of God with boots on. And as they are there and connect with our, with our Panamanian friends, that there will be bonds that start there, connections that start there that go on forever. And may your name be lifted up in these days because someone stepped out of the boat, took a chance, went to sit at table with some other friends. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace in this venture. Protect them as they go, we pray. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Secondly, Jesus connects physical hunger and spiritual hunger. 
He connects physical hunger and spiritual hunger. Listen to how it reads. John 6, 26 and 27. He's just fed 5,000 people miraculously. Some guys follow him to the other side of the lake and they say, when did you get here? And he doesn't answer their question. He does that a lot. He doesn't answer your question because he's got this other most, more important thing. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. He says, you want to hang out with me because I'm your meal ticket. This is not about miracles and signs and wonders. I'm your meal ticket. You want to see me do that again because you didn't have to work for the food or anything. And then he says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Or again in Matthew 5, in what we call the Beatitudes, it says this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or for right standing or for uprightness, for they will be filled said, when you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you'll be satiated. You'll be at peace. You'll be full. You'll be encouraged. You'll be engaged. Jesus takes felt needs and points us toward real needs. That's what he does. I love the story that came just before this one in, in John 6, where the little kid has his lunch. Nobody else has food, apparently. And his mom's packed him a lunch or something, some fish, a few loaves, and and, and they get him and bring him to Jesus, and Jesus takes that and multiplies it. I have a friend who wrote a musical about that, and, about some parts of the gospel, and this story's in it. He has a little kid come up and sing this song. If you'd have been there when he borrowed my lunch, you'd have believed him too. I love that. Can you see this kid when he's a grandpa years down the road, and his, his grandchildren are saying, Grandpa, tell us that story one more time when you were 12 years old and you were hanging out with Jesus, that, that person from Nazareth, and he multiplied the load like it was your lunch. And he did. This is way more than just feeding a multitude one time. This has ramifications spiritually that spread down the years. In the 1940s and 50s, there was a psychologist by the name of Abraham Maslow. Some of you folks took psych class and you remember this. But he did this thing called the hierarchy of needs. It's like a pyramid of how human need. It was his theory about how human need works. The baseline down here is physiological needs. Food, water, you know, all of that. Safety needs, to be secure, to have a safe place. Social needs, to belong, to connect. Esteem needs, to know that I'm somebody. To know that, 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 that I have some value. And self-actualization, which is a fancy word that means fulfillment, that I'm, that I'm doing what I'm about, that I have some connection. I would submit this, that when you folks get together, when you share your lives at the table, that all of those things, all these things here, happen. May not be completely, but pieces of all of those happen. When you sit at Jesus' table, all of those happen. The basic needs the safety needs, the social needs, the esteem needs, and the needs to be fulfilled. He who hungers and thirsts after righteousness will be filled. That's what it's, I didn't say that. That's what he said. My question is this, and I'm asking this of me. What would happen, like I sat that down this morning, Ruth made homemade granola yesterday. It was tremendous. I'd invite you over. It's not enough. But the... <laughs> But, but she put out some strawberries and blueberries this morning, and so at 7 o'clock I'm eating this stuff. And, and I was just thinking about this again. What if every time I sat down to a meal, I asked myself the question, God, am, am I as hungry for you as I am for this? What would happen to my life 
if I asked myself that question. Where am I being fed? How am I feeding myself spiritually? I feed it a lot of places. If, if like information is food, I get all kinds of junk. Sometimes in my associations, I feed it places that don't nurture me toward eternal health. But it, it takes me a different place. But if I ask the question of myself, what if my spiritual hunger were as strong as my physical hunger? And Lord, birth that in me. Help that to be large in me. Number three, Jesus reaches and teaches at the table. You see it all through the scriptures. Every time you turn around, Jesus is eating with somebody. He's got Mary and Martha's house. He's going to the house of the Pharisees. He's going to Simon's house. He's going. He, he just, it's on and on. 4,000 here, 5,000 there. Just before he goes to the cross, he says, one last time I want to eat. Then the road to Emmaus incident. Then back at Jerusalem in the room. Then a few weeks later when Peter, who's just bummed out, he's just fouled up and he goes back to commercial fishing. And Jesus shows up on the beach and fixes him breakfast on the beach. Like fish and chips on the beach early in the morning. What do you do with a God who hunts you down? Not to vaporize you because you're fouled up, but to fix your breakfast. What do you do with a God who fixes your breakfast on the beach? You follow him. That's what you do with a God like that. When the disciples asked him, how do you pray early on? He says, this is the way you pray. Father, holy be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And then he says, give us this day our daily bread. He says, Father, you're holy, want your kingdom on earth, so what's for dinner? There's this linkage, this connection that he makes. And then at the end, when he's about ready to go back to heaven in Acts 1-4, it says, while he was eating with them one day, he says, stay in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. In Jesus' day, rabbinic table fellowship was huge. The rabbis had this thing, certain rabbis in particular, about with whom you ate and what you ate. And if you ate with crummy people socially, then you were tainted by them. And Jesus, those were his people, the crummy people. I love that because I'd get to sit at that table. That's my table where the crummy people are because all have sinned. All have missed the mark and come short of the glory of God. And in Luke 15, it says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law, these religious types, they muttered, this man welcome sinners and he eats with them what's the big deal about eating what's with that well when you eat with somebody you're embracing that person especially in this culture you identify with them totally it's personal it's intimate when when one of you families goes to another person's home here's the deal that person's gone out they've worked they've got money they go get food they come they fix it it's wonderful they got pot roast and they got or Chili rellenos, whatever's your favorite meal. That's what they've got. And they got apple pie for dessert. It's really great. When you sit down to eat that food, when you put that food in your mouth, you're not just eating pot roast. You're eating that person's life. That's their life. They gave their life away for that. That's why it feels so intimate. But how, how does it feel? You know how it feels to be welcomed into somebody's home. It's, it's different than going to a restaurant. Restaurants are good. That's, I like restaurants. But it's a different deal when I have you come and sit in my chair and I fix you my coffee. may not be good as Timberline Cafe or Starbucks, but, it, but it's mine. Hospitality is at the heart of God. Dynamic things happen when you open your heart and your pantry to people. Dynamic things happen.
Some years ago, I was with some leaders in Romania, and some church leaders came at the end of our time and said, we want, want to tell you two stories. This was the first one. They said there was a young couple who went up to Moldova, which is up north, and they wanted to do a church plant like these guys in Panama are going to do. And they wanted to do it in their house, little house church. And so they built this house. But there were religious forces in the town where they were that were really against them. They got the, the house all built. They got the, the uh, courtyard. And, and as soon as they got it done, there was a bang on the door early one morning. They went to the gate. And here stood some big burly guys that said, We have come here to tear your house down. You are not going to do this. And the man said, Fine, come on in. These guys climbed up on the roof and started throwing roof tiles off. And all morning they worked working on the roof, tearing it apart. And midday, later in the morning, the mom said she started cooking stuff, stew, baked bread, stuff. Then she said to the kids about 11.30, go out, go out and call the workers down from the roof. Tell them lunch is ready. The kids said, what are you? He said, just do it. Went out, called them down. The men came in the house. He said, we have lunch here for you. The guys are wary. You know, it could be poison in the stew. They don't know what that is. And they said, no, no, it's okay. It's all right. Be our guest. You're in our home. We want to bless you. They sat down and they kept saying, why are you doing this? And they said, well, we follow Jesus and he says to love our enemies. And you're not our enemies, but, but you think we are yours. And I, we just want to bless you because he would. And you're always welcome here. They finished their meal. They went back out. They climbed up on the roof and started putting the tiles back up on the roof. And when they had their first little meeting in that house, three of those guys were there. There's something about opening my heart at my table to you that changes everything. I get changed at the table. Maybe that's why Jesus says, when I leave, I want you to get together. And when you get together, here's what you do. I want you to take the loaf, and I want you to take the cup. And I want you to celebrate the fact that I was here. My death that took your sins away, and my resurrection that gave you life. Every time you take this, do it to remember me because I'm the God who sits at the table with you. I love the story. The second story they told us was that there, Ceausescu, who was the communist dictator for years in Romania, took a whole bunch of pastors from different churches who he knew didn't like each other because they had like doctrinal differences and they, you know, some were old school and some weren't. And he put them in jail in the same cell. He thought these guys would kill each other. They were in there for weeks and weeks, and one, one morning, somebody said, this is Sunday, and somebody else said, this is Easter. This is Easter, Resurrection Day. And somebody else said, don't you think we should have the Lord's table? Shouldn't, shouldn't we have communion? They said, yeah, but we got nothing. We don't have anything. We don't have water. We don't have any kind of food here. And somebody else said, why don't we pretend like when we were kids like with imaginary food. You remember when you were kids and you pretended that you were... And so they took the loaf and they pretended and they passed it around and each took a piece. And then they took the cup. They each took a sip from the common cup. And as that cup started around the circle, the Spirit of God showed up. Melted bigotry lines. Melted hearts. They fell into each other's arms. And in that moment, they were one. When our hearts are open... And we sit at table, even an imaginary table. Jesus shows up. Finally, Jesus wants to join us at our table and take us to his. He wants to join us at our table and take us to his. I love that verse in Revelation 3.20 where it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Here I am. 
I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and what? Eat with him. I'll come in and eat with him. I'm saying, what's that about? And he with me. It's about the God who sits at table. It's about the God who fixes his breakfast on the beach when we fouled up. It's about the God who wants to be in company and communion with us. And heaven is a wedding feast. He said, I'm going to be with you in this time, and then you're going to come to my place, and we're going to have this banquet. It's going to be party time. That's what heaven is. On the banks of the Kurai River, a few years ago, it's a river in Ecuador, I sat in an Alca village. Some years before, members of this tribe had martyred five young missionaries in their 20s and 30s. Some of you remember the story in 1956. And I've told this story before, but I love it because it illustrates so powerfully what Jesus is up to at the table. We had gone out, I'd, I'd gone down with a member of Congress who was into human rights and there were some issues down there and he asked if I would go and I went with him. We fly into the jungle and these guys come out of the jungle and, and we go to their village and we were sitting there and we'd, we'd gone out in the afternoon and practiced with blowguns, like nine-foot blowguns. I didn't get anything, but, I, but I, it was cool. And uh, we came and we sat down and in essence said, so what's for dinner? And what was for dinner was roast pig, manioc root, and something else. I didn't ask. And uh, we had dinner, and afterwards, Steve Saint, who was the son of one of these five that was killed by the Alcas back in 56, who was now part of their tribe, essentially, he said, why don't we have communion, Dick? And I, uh, I said, great. Do we have, like, elements? Do we have? He said, you know, all we have is this little cake that they baked, this little muffin, and some orange tang. I think God blesses what you have. Kids' lunch, orange tang, he goes with it. That's my thought. And so we passed that loaf around, and here were these little Alka Indians who, by tribal custom, were killers. They killed anybody who was a foreigner. Passed it around, and now they were following Jesus. Then we passed the cup. And as we passed the cup, I had this thought, why don't we sing that old song, Amazing Grace? And I said, Steve, do these people know Amazing Grace? And he said, yeah, we do. So we stood up, and we started singing Amazing Grace in, in the wow language, in the Quechua tongue, in, in Spanish and in English. And uh, stood holding hands. It was pitch black at night with one candle stuck in a mound of dirt. The night birds are calling and other critters are crying out. And when we got done, it felt like we just hugged somebody. And I turned and I hugged this guy standing next to me, an Indian guy about that tall. And I remembered that at age 17, he had been one of the guys who had speared those missionaries to death. And we asked him at one point, do you feel bad about that? He said, I feel terrible about that. But we didn't know. We didn't know that when you follow Jesus, you're not supposed to do that. And when we learned about that, we stopped doing that. When Steve Saint's son, which is Nate Saint's grandson, graduated from high school or college, they asked, would you like to have a guest come to your, to your graduation? He said, yeah, I'd like to have Minkai come, this guy, because he has the spirit of my grandpa. Here is the God who invites us to the table. And when we do, it's party time. What's for dinner? Everything. I could get nurtured. I get set free. I get unleashed and unlocked. Here is, the, here is the God who says, when you come to a time like this, this is the table in the kingdom. This is one of the tables in the kingdom. When somebody comes to your house, it's a table in the kingdom. When you go to, to a coffee shop together, it's a table in the kingdom. Jesus shows up there. 
My question is this, for you and for me. Where am I getting my food? Where am I getting my food? Not just for my physical life. I'm talking about for my, for my spiritual journey. Where, where do I find that? And how's the hunger situation? When we sit down at table, what if we were to say, Lord, make me as hungry here spiritually as I am physically for you. I'd like you to bow your heads with me as I pray. I have a growing hunger in me for, uh, for the grace of God in my life. And um, to know Him better and more deeply. I just had this sense when I was, when I was praying and thinking about this that sometimes we get going so fast we don't have time to sit at table. I know that's true for young moms and young dads. I know that's true for college kids and for all of us at one level. But I just had this sense when I was praying and thinking about this that, that there may be a businessman here who's just absolutely frazzled, just frenetic, just wiped out. And the Lord is saying to you this morning, John, Harry, Jose, I want you to come sit at table. Just stop. Just come and sit with me. Sit with some others and let me nurture you. Father, thank you for your grace in our friends here. I pray by your Holy Spirit that whoever that is and whoever they are that need ministry today, need your presence today in thinking about how we are nurtured and how we are fed. Open our eyes, just like the disciples, to see you clearly, to see what it is you, you want us to be about in our own lives. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for these wonderful friends who have come to spend this time on a Sunday morning. Help us to feel like those guys on the road to Emmaus, that our hearts burn within us as we hear your heart. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. It's time to worship the Lord with our giving this morning. If you're a guest here, please don't uh, do anything but put the communication card in if you want to. But as our ushers come to pass the offering plates, consider the offering prayed for. And uh, just give and rejoice and worship as uh, we are led by Kevin. Hear the word of the Lord as a benediction, as a good word on us this fine April day. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Our prayer team is coming. They're going to be here. If you have a need, large or small, consider this the table this morning. If you have a need, large or small, and you just want someone to take a moment, have a prayer with you, please come. I'm going to stay down here with these friends. Maybe you're that business guy. Let's touch base. God bless you. Go in His grace. <laughs>